I'd just like to read one single verse on theft, a very fine verse, Thou shalt not steal, and the comment on that of the Apostle Paul, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Let him that used to steal not go on stealing any longer, but rather let him labor, working with his own hands the thing which is good, so that he may have things to give to him that needeth. That's a beautiful text because in that one verse, Ephesians 4.28, you see the negative of the commandment, stop stealing, the positive of the commandment, start utilizing the hand to work, and then the laudable goal of the virtue, which is the opposite of the prohibited vice, namely to accumulate wealth, prosperity, good in itself, and to use a portion of that prosperity to encourage others who are needy to start uh, accumulating wealth for themselves. Thou shalt not steal. Now, what are the duties required in this Eighth Commandment, Thou shalt not steal? The duties required in the Eighth Commandment are truth, faithfulness, and justice in contracts and commerce between man and man. We're entering into contracts all the time. Contracts of marriage, which we've just dealt with, but more particularly contracts, uh, economic arrangements between people. And uh, at this point, perhaps it's appropriate to point out what we may have realized already, and that is the overlapping nature of one commandment and another. You can see how Adultery does have some aspects of theft inasmuch as one woman may steal the husband that belongs to another woman. So there is a theft aspect in adultery. Um, we saw the overlap of the first and the second commandment. first commandment prohibits the worship of any god except Jehovah, but some false gods... Uh, are worshipped through a graven image. The second commandment prohibits the making of a graven image of Jehovah and trying to serve Jehovah through the graven image. Well, there you can see the overlap of the first and the second commandment. And so too you see the overlap between the fourth commandment, six days shalt thou labor, and the seventh commandment, thou shalt not steal. The implication is, if you have been laboring hard, six days a week, as a good Sabbath keeper, well then, you won't need to steal. And by your laboring with a hand that used to steal, you will accumulate wealth, some of which you will give to the needy person, as we just read in Ephesians 4. So what is sin? Sin is the transgression of the law of God, the Ten Commandments. Of which of the Ten Commandments is sin a transgression? Well, that depends on the kind of sin. But you often find that a specific sin, such as robbery, is a good example. Robbery is theft accompanied by violence. You beat someone up, not for the purpose of killing them, though they may die as a result of the severity of the beating, but you beat someone up for the purpose of knocking them unconscious or whatever so that you can then steal their money. Well, the sin of robbery, you see, is wrong because it transgresses at least two commandments. Robbery involves theft and it involves a transgression of the sixth commandment, namely using physical violence, which is a degree of murder towards the robbie. I guess that would be the, the name, the Rabbi. And gambling seems to break many commandments. It breaks the first commandment, the second commandment, the fourth commandment, the seventh commandment, and the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet, very, very centrally. So gambling is really a horrible vice. We see then that the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal, requires truth, faithfulness, and justice in contracts and commerce between man and man. That is to say, if we enter into an engagement with someone else to supply X number of goods in, re in return for X number of dollars, we've got to honor our agreement. Now, the first contract mentioned in the Bible is the contract between God and man, in respect of which God said to man, man, if you will subjugate the earth and the sea and the sky and everything in it to my glory, then I, almighty God, in return will give you unlosable everlasting life. And uh, man said to God, God made the first move, 
man then said to God very well and if I sufficiently subjugate the earth and the sea and the sky and everything in it to your glory then I'm expecting you to give me unlosable everlasting life contract of marriage the same way two parties contract and promise to do things I will do this for you if you will do that for me which stipulations of the marriage contract are of course uh, reflected in the marriage formula when the marriage is entered in on and so it is even more frequently when we enter into contracts of hire hire of our services of, uh, of selling of leasing hire purchase uh, buying a house through a mortgage or whatever the case may be the two parties are to understand before they enter into contract exactly what each one of them is required to do and they are to abide by their contract um, and if they wish to change the terms then this can only be done with mutual consent uh, except in the contract of marriage where not even mutual consent should suffice to dissolve that contract and that's because marriage is a contract sui generis that means a very special kind of contract quite incomparable with any other kind of contract because although marriage is contractual it involves many non-contractual elements too which render it indissoluble in the way in which a regular straight contract is dissolvable second the duty required in the eighth commandment requires a rendering to everyone his due uh, I must see to it that I give you what I've promised to give you in terms of the contract of sale but also even if I have no contract with you I should use my influence in politics and in society to see that you do receive from other people what they owe you and to the extent to which I have influence uh, to uh, bring that about or to uh, encourage it but to the extent to which I don't use that influence politically or economically to that extent I am to some extent responsible for the diminution of your estate the reduction of your income third the eighth commandment requires restitution of goods unlawfully detained from the right owners thereof restitution now the doctrine of restitution of giving back what has been wrongfully appropriated is a much neglected doctrine in the evangelical world today uh, many evangelicals would say that if you have stolen a hundred dollars but you can't pay it back um, if you go to the person from whom you stole it and said I'm real sorry I stole hundred dollars from you last week but the Lord saved me last night yippee but uh, we should expect the steely the person from whom the hundred bucks was stolen to say well that's fine because you become a born-again Christian that's wonderful I absolve you and perhaps the steely does have the right to give that kind of absolution uh, but I think what we need to emphasize today is that uh, if the Lord did save you tonight after you stole $200 the night before that you should see it as your Christian duty to go and restore that $200 and according to our catechism not just to restore the $200 but a little bit more than that it's interesting that the catechism in the footnote refers us here under restitution to Leviticus chapter 6 which says that um, the thief shall restore the whole of the principal that is the exact amount that he stole plus the fifth part more of it and then it refers to the New Testament to Luke 19 the words of Zacchaeus the income tax collector who had been uh, ripping off the people from whom he collected taxes and when he repented he said to Jesus if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation I will restore it to him fourfold that's a very interesting New Testament comment I think on the general ongoing equity in uh, the Old Testament judicial law requiring um, a restitution what you probably don't have or may not have located in your copy of the larger catechism is a very interesting statement that I would uh, like to read you 
<coughs> pardon me if I can just locate it it's from the directory for the public worship of God that you may have included in the back and uh, the minister is given the following direction concerning the visitation of the sick just listen to this the minister shall admonish the sick to set his house in order to take care for payment of his debts and to make restitution or satisfaction where he hath done any wrong to be reconciled to those with whom he has been at variance and to fully forgive all men their trespasses against him I wonder how many ministers today when they're visiting the sick particularly as the sick are in bad shape and could possibly die without having repaid their debts that the minister says you need particularly now to set about making a speedy restitution uh, of your debts and to get your estate cleared before you pass on to the next world you see then that this idea of restitution is not some newfangled weird uh, neo-nomian uh, apocryphal doctrine that has been couched out in the minds of people that hate the doctrine of uh, the um, <coughs> imputation of Christ's finished work it's simply the doctrine that's laid down in the Westminster Confession of Faith more importantly it's the doctrine which the Westminster of Faith uh, claims is required in the written word of God and so we need to give heed today to the doctrine of restitution where there have been cases of thefts in the past further uh, we are to keep this commandment by giving and lending freely according to our abilities and the necessities of others Christians should be generous people and perhaps the most characteristic way in which we should freely lend to people is of course by being hospitable if people come visit us we should say well come have a cup of tea have some scones have some toast um, have a meal and when we do that we shouldn't do it with the intention of them inviting us back although they should certainly feel that they would want to do this hospitality generosity should be part of the Christian's way of life uh, a person steals do they not when they greedily covet something that isn't theirs the opposite virtue is an uncovetous generous sharing of what you have uh, with others of course never to the point of making them a parasite dependent upon you uh, but to the point of setting a good example and of course of encouraging them to do the same not necessarily towards you but perhaps to start doing the same towards other people a lot less fortunate than you are um, further the eighth commandment thou shalt not steal requires moderation in respect of our worldly goods in other words we should never make an idol out of our goods the word of God says if riches increase do not set your heart on them do not begin to worship them uh, and what we should expect is a moderate increase in our worldly goods I believe as Christians we should expect God to give us increasing economic prosperity I really do and he will if we are careful to keep his laws but the Bible never says if you become a Christian today and keep the Ten Commandments you'll be a millionaire in five years time it doesn't say that it does say that if you become a Christian today and study the law of God and follow the law of God especially its economic teachings and make wise investments and you may often have to counteract the uh, thieving uh, the thieving inroads of the socialistic state to diminish your income uh, but um, as you do this you should certainly expect God to give you temporal prosperity without necessarily making you a millionaire and so the commandment the catechism goes on to say that we are required to make a provident care and study to get keep use and dispose of the things which are necessary and convenient in other words it's not just your duty to get enough to satisfy the bare minimum needs of yourself and your wife and your family but it is your duty to study 
how to acquire and to increase your possessions and your use not only of the things that are necessary but also the things that are convenient the things that are nice to have the footnotes here are very interesting Proverbs 27 be diligent to get to know the state of your flocks look well to your herds that means if you're a farmer every so often go out and count the animals and if some of them are disappearing in a certain part of your fields it may be that there's a wolf prowling around and that you need to address yourself to this problem because by allowing your herds to be diminished uh, this is ultimately threatening the standard of living of your family you see it's your duty to counteract that and uh, this extends not only to necessities but also to the nice things of life Ecclesiastes 2 there's nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor I know that there is no good in them but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor it is the gift of God and I think it's interesting that just when Hezekiah looked as if he was going to die in Isaiah 38 the prophet said to him Hezekiah set your house in order for you shall die in other words get your estate in good shape you may die by the way you'll be interested to know that I said to my wife uh, just about two weeks ago it's a Thursday today yeah I said to her two, week, two weeks ago Thursday night uh, tomorrow I don't want to be disturbed between breakfast and lunchtime because I'm going to go through all my business documents and draw up a new will and make a full list of all of our assets and where they are and what you should do just in case I don't get across the Tasman and go down in the sea so that immediately you'll have money immediately available if I die and um, we hope it won't happen but um, uh, I feel that I should do this and also um, tell you exactly where all of our money and investments are and who to approach in the event of my death to give you help so as to realize these assets to get the best possible income and what to do with them and I believe that that's my duty as the head of the house and I regret having put it off after this move to a new country earlier this year so long as two weeks ago but I finally got down to it and the neighbors witnessed our new wills and then uh, a couple of hours later I got on the plane and here I am so if you think that you are dying or could die in an accident or whatever get your estate in good shape because it's a terrible thing if a socialistic state picks up most of the goodies and your wife and kids get ripped off far more of your estate than would have been the case if you'd done everything you could to counter the, the greedy state from grabbing more than it's legally and morally entitled to so we need to um, uh, study how to acquire to keep to use and to dispose of the things which are necessary and convenient for the sustentation of our nature and suitable to our condition thou shalt not steal further means says the catechism having a lawful calling and diligence in that calling now if the calling which you have is not a lawful calling in terms of God's law you need to get out of that profession going back to that pearl of a text with which we started this lecture advice to the professional thief once he gets saved let him that used to steal steal no more but let him do what utilize the hand that used to steal getting a new job learning how to work to save to tithe and to give a portion of his goods to another person to reprogram them so if you are in the kind of a profession which really is an ungodly profession such as a professional thief professional casino operator professional prostitute uh, professional uh, well whatever else you could be a professional at you need to get out of it you may say ah oh, well there are some aspects of sin in the job I have I'm sure there are because we're all fallen creatures some aspects of sin in the job that I have as a seminary professor wouldn't quite know how to put my finger on them but they must be because I'm a sinner and I'm there 
And I would say that if you're becoming increasingly unhappy in the kind of job you have because you're absolutely convinced that the employer that you are working for is really ripping off the public in a terrible way and that there's far more evil in the job that he is doing than there is good in it for the public, then I really think that uh, probably what, well, as a Christian while you're in it, you won't do that evil, of course. You'll do what is good. But yet if it's making you unhappy that the good that you're doing is being twisted by an unscrupulous employer and used for something else, then I think you need to start disengaging and looking for a new job. I don't say pull the plug out immediately, but I say start looking around for another job now which you assess would enable you to see more as your contribution to the kingdom of God and then when you've got it set up, make your move then. So we do need uh, to have a lawful calling. And once we're in the calling, we shouldn't expect perfection. If you're a slave, don't mope about it. Do a good job as a slave, even though there may be some slavey aspects of the job that you don't like doing. However, if while a slave you get the opportunity for promotion, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, well then grab the opportunity for promotion. And so too, if you're unmarried, don't run around looking for someone to marry, but if uh, you do come across someone to marry, that's promotion perhaps, uh, and, and take the promotion. Or if you are married, and perhaps not too happily married, don't go around trying to get a divorce but if you do get divorced, or if the partner dies, and then you're single again, well then that's promotion. <laughs> uh, in other words, try to be as happy as you can in the state in which you are, in spite of the imperfections in that state. But if the state is uh, saddled with a preponderance of bad things rather than good things, then begin to make the effort to change that state. And um, that would be the, the general advice that I think we should follow. We need to be diligent in our profession once we're in it. That is to say, we need to ask God to make us do it as good as we possibly can. Ongoing job training and uh, this sort of thing is all very valuable. We also need to learn how to practice frugality. And that means, of course, to thriftily save the things which we are acquiring. I think it's very interesting that after the Lord Jesus miraculously multiplied the bread and fed everybody, they didn't walk away and leave the litter there or take the, the, what was left over and dump it in the trash can. You remember it says that they gathered up the breadcrumbs that were left. Now you may laugh about the thing that I'm about to tell you now, but when I get a letter in the mail, I never throw the stamp away. I tear the stamp off and I put it in an envelope. Even if it's an Australian stamp, worth very little in Australia. Why? Because if I send a hundred Australian stamps to a friend in the United States and he in return sends me a hundred American stamps, those American stamps, when I've gotten them, are marketable in Australia. And his Aussie stamps that he got from me, marketable in um, the United States. And stamps, by the way, are one of the best investments that you can get, so don't throw them away. Another practice that I have is uh, if people send me circulars, and I'm always getting them, the first thing I do, having glimpsed it, even if it's trash, is to turn it over and see whether it's printed on the back. If it is, it goes into a cardboard box in my office. This was in America where it gets cold. That is used to kindle the fire the next winter. Haven't yet figured out what to do with it in Australia where I don't need to light a fire. On the other hand, if it's uh, clean on one side, I never throw it away. I put it into a drawer. And uh, that uh, usually is what the first, uh, the first attempt of my next book gets written on, the back of that. Uh, and then glued up and amended. And only after that does it get typed onto typing paper, which is expensive. I'm not going to waste time putting the first draft onto typing paper just to amend it later if I can use the back of someone's circular. And maybe what did this for me was that I was in England at the beginning of World War II when there was a terrible shortage of uh, envelopes. And the British government encouraged every Englishman when he received a letter to keep the envelope, to open it very carefully and to reuse the envelope in sending it to someone else to help the war effort. And uh, they had, I remember it very distinctly, I was a little boy of about six, 
they uh, had little labels printed up which you would stick over the second-hand envelope that you would receive in the mail from your friend and on that blank label you would then write his name and address and reuse the envelope and have a bottle of glue to reseal the envelope. Um, I may say that with big manila envelopes costing 26 cents each in Australia now, I'm doing this all the time uh, with manila envelopes uh, this particular day, this particular time. And in that way I accumulate more wealth than I would otherwise accumulate and uh, diversify it in that way, uh, with a modest salary, manage to expand uh, my estate and put away a nest egg for my, uh, for my family, which I think we should do. But the interesting thing about these uh, labels that were printed up in England World War II, as I say, they were blank, so you could write on them after you'd stuck it on the envelope, was they did have something printed in the very top corner uh, of the label to encourage you to use it for that purpose. And I'll never forget it. I'll be 47 soon, and I was a boy of six when I saw these labels. And this is what it said on the label. I am not ashamed, but I am proud to use the other man's envelope and economize. I am not ashamed, but I am proud to use the other man's envelope and to economize. And as my wife will tell you, one of my faults is uh, finding it very difficult to throw away old clothes. I love old clothes. And when I'm not expecting visitors, I'm always wearing old clothes. And if I get visitors, I've got to get out of those old clothes quickly and get in a presentable condition. Um, so, uh, we need to learn frugality. And we're living in an age when people throw things away far too easily. Now, I'm not saying you must go to the extreme of a friend of mine in California, a total abstainer, who uh, goes around with a long uh, walking stick with a nail on the end in fields, jabbing every beer can that he sees there after having crushed it, and then uh, putting them on this, uh, this uh, six-inch nail that he's got fixed at the bottom of his uh, walking stick, and then dumping them in a cardboard box after squashing them, as aluminium beer can squash very well, and then uh, handing them in at the, uh, the metal junk factory and making some money out of it. Although I must say I admire his frugality. One can carry these things too far. Uh, and yet the fact is I, I admire the thrift. And he takes his whole family, he's got a lot of kids out, and they go beer can hunting, uh, each with their sticks. And uh, it does indeed provide a source of income uh, for, for the family. But um, we need to learn how to be frugal in an age of plenty, at least in the West, when we throw things away so easily, but an age in which the majority of all of the people in the world have never ever since they were born yet had a meal, a square meal, since they were born by United Nations standards. It's a sobering thought. Sobering thought. We should avoid unnecessary lawsuits. Why? Well, they're costly and they waste time. If there's no other way to settle a, a breach of contract than a lawsuit, well, then we go ahead and we institute legal proceedings. Uh, but as a last resort, really, because it's always expensive, and uh, if it's in any way avoidable, we should avoid it. Avoiding suretyship and other like engagements. Don't ever sign a contract underwriting a close friend or a relative of yours to the tune of five or ten thousand dollars if he defaults on, on a, a contract which he enters into which he cannot perform uh, you may think that that's the Christian thing to do but the word of God says that we should not do it it's much better not to sign it and then if he does get in the hole seeing how much money we can give him as an outright gift but you obligate yourself to bail someone else out for $10,000 if he comes to grief, hoping, of course, and he'll tell you this at the time, oh, don't worry, it'll never come to pass, just a contingency thing. And then you make your plans, and suddenly you get hit for a bill for 10000 bucks because of something that's happened to someone else over whose improper planning you had little or no control. Uh, frankly, uh, I think you owe some kind of explanation to your children uh, as to their sudden deprivation of that $10,000 asset. 
which they would otherwise have been able to have looked forward to. So, we also need an endeavor by all just and unjust means to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and the outward estate of others as well as our own. Notice that this commandment, thou shalt not steal, requires us to try to get wealthy. Today we have these socialistic evangelicals who say that if you really love Jesus, what you must do is give away every bit of income that you get, except what you absolutely need to keep yourself above the poverty line, and redistribute your wealth. And if you don't do that, you're not a Christian. This is not the teaching of the Word of God. The teaching of the Word of God is, it is your duty to increase your own wealth and the wealth of your family and to encourage other people to increase their wealth. But you will never increase the wealth of other people by giving away to them nearly all that you possess. All you'll do is deplete your own wealth. You've got to show them how to get wealthy by their own thrift rather than encourage them to parasitically uh, depend upon you. And by the way, even if you've got $100,000 in the bank and you decide to give $95,000 of it away, if you try to spread it evenly throughout the world, uh, probably none of the recipients will, um, will receive uh, enough money from what you give them to buy a pin with. So you won't really meaningfully have... Uh, have helped people. But if you use uh, $10,000, let us say, of the 100000 on a project to train five or ten people into how to work with their resources, even if you spend that ten grand, but in doing that, you're encouraging them to work and to be thrifty and to go around collecting beer cans on the field and sell it to someone else or postage stamps or whatever, uh, and then for them to teach others how to do it, then you are indeed much more meaningfully helping to uplift the standard of living of the world, I think, and, uh, and helping your neighbor. So, what are the sins then, finally, that are forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? The sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, see what that's saying? It's saying that if you are not acquiring wealth, you are a thief. Who are you stealing from? Your children, your heirs. Of course you are. And a man who will not take care of his own wife and children is worse than an unbeliever, says the word of God. Do you see it? There's no merit in you or I taking care of someone else's children if we're neglecting our own children by using money that we should be giving them to take care of someone else's children. It's obvious. Now, the sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, are theft, robbery, which is theft plus violence, man-stealing, which is uh, kidnapping or, or child-stealing. By the way, uh, in the footnote here, it makes it clear that kidnapping should carry the mandatory death penalty. And receiving things that are stolen, fencing. Also, fraudulent dealing, false weights and measures. I often wonder when <laughs> uh, certain societies went metric in their weights and measures. I often wonder to what extent the, the public got ripped off after that transition in paying more money for commodities that suddenly went metric than they thought they were buying. Um, or the people, you know, that um, you go into a shop, what will this be? Oh, it'll be a dollar ninety-nine. And sometimes you buy gas, they neglect to offer you the one cent back. I don't know about you, I always demand it back. I wait there until I get it back. Because we're not to shortchange people. Um, our yes must be yes and our no must be no. There must be no fraudulent dealing in false weights and measures. No removing of landmarks. Oh, I could give you many, many examples from my pastoral experience because I used to be a minister in a country district. All my members were farmers of removing of landmarks. And um, at the end, I had my elder camping out on his border to give a black eye to his neighbor, who was a Lutheran, if he or his sheep came across onto his property. And it was quite a difficult matter to try to, um, to straighten out removing of landmarks 
But here I'm thinking particularly of removing of international landmarks, international boundary disputes. Nobody worries exactly where the boundary is until suddenly gold is discovered and what the neighboring state claims is his side of the boundary. Now suddenly we've got a boundary dispute, you see? And there have been all kinds of boundary disputes like this in history. A very serious one between Paraguay and Bolivia in the mid-30s. Um, uh, there were these kind of boundary disputes in South Africa. They only started very strangely after the discovery of diamonds and gold. And then suddenly the various states involved got very concerned about exactly where the boundary was. And um, I could give you many very interesting uh, instances of this. Perhaps I will just tell you about uh, General Bayer's who was a South African general and a Christian man. In World War uh, I, um, the South African government made the very historic decision to declare war against Germany, though there were many people in South Africa who favored neutrality. Uh, and as a result of this, uh, General Smuts, who was uh, in charge of South Africa at the time, as the Minister of Defense of the Prime Minister, Louis Botha, uh, sent South African volunteer troops uh, into southwest Africa to attack uh, the Germans and to drive them out. And uh, another general was ordered to do the same, and he refused. This was General Bayers. And when they court-martialed him, uh, they said, why do you refuse to attack the Germans? And he said, because the Germans have done me no harm. And he says, you want to annex that territory? They said, that's right, we're at war with Germany. He says, well, my Bible says, thou shalt not move the landmarks of thy neighbor. And that ultimately led to a situation that cost that general his life. And yet, whether one agrees with his application, I think it's very interesting that to him, as Bible-believing Christian, as he read his Bible, he saw, and indeed he was right, in seeing the usage of this landmark text in the Bible that it did indeed apply to international disputes and not just to disputes between two neighboring farmers. So it sometimes costs something to be a Christian. It can cost you your life, perhaps. And, of course, you may misunderstand what God's requiring you to do. But the commandments of God are very broad. Nations need, then, I'm saying, to uh, agree with one another as to where the international boundary is and to honor it even after valuable minerals are discovered uh, five yards on the other, other nation's side of the, of the border. Injustice and unfaithfulness in contracts between man and man or in matters of trust, oppression, extortion, usury and bribery. Now we don't have time to go into this matter of usury and it's a complicated matter. Um, I believe it is our duty to take excess principle which we have available for investment and to invest it at a rate of interest or to invest it in precious metals such as silver and gold which uh, it seems are likely to uh, appreciate uh, legally at a more rapid rate than the savings and loan uh, building society could give one. Uh, however, I think two things. First of all, we must never invest money which we have available for investment simply to try to get as rich as possible as quickly as possible. If the investment is shaky, if there seems to be considerable element of risk involved, it would be better to invest it at a lower rate of interest in a safer investment than to invest it in a shaky investment at a phenomenal rate of interest. That's number one. Number two... Uh, we should not invest things in such a way that our fellow Christian brethren get ripped off. If a Christian person who is in dire need, your brother comes to you and says, I'm a farmer, it's just hailed on my property, I've got to have $5,000 immediately or I'm wiped out, uh, I'll lose the farm. And if you say, sure, I'll help you with $5,000, but uh, of course, uh, 30% interest. That's a terrible thing. Really, what you should do in a non-inflationary situation is to say to him, brother, here's the 5,000. Offer me security uh, and pay me back and uh, receive the collateral back uh, when you can. However, because we're in an inflationary situation and inflation is government-induced, 
theft from its own citizens by increasing the supply of the paper money without gold and precious metal backing. That's the definition of inflation. In an inflationary situation, which we are in now, I really believe that a Christian money borrower who borrows money from a fellow Christian really should see it as his duty to repay the principal at the market rate of interest, which the Christian lender could have been getting for his money had he lent it to a non-Christian money borrower rather than taken compassion on, on the Christian money borrower. You may disagree with me uh, about that, that's alright, but this is, what, this is my attempt to try and follow the biblical law in an inflationary situation such as we're in at the moment. So usually, trying to rip off a person that borrows money from us, especially a Christian when he's indigent, and to get the maximum rate of exorbitant interest, seems to me is prohibited by the word of God under theft. So too, bribery. Vexatious lawsuits, that means in going ahead with a lawsuit when you can, settle matters without lit litigation. Unjust enclosures and depopulations. To be a, a land baron and to buy up all of the farms around you if you've got the clout when the other farmers are struggling and in that way depopulate the countryside by forcing them off the land into the urban areas with all of the traumatic experiences of a rural person coming to town and trying to find their feet. It's not something that we should get involved in. What about engrossing commodities to enhance the price? To en en enhance the price. Uh, you know that uh, statement in the Proverbs. Ah, oh, it's bad, it's bad, says the buyer. And then after the seller says, oh, well, in that case, I'll give it to you cheaper. And then after the seller walks away, the buyer chuckles and says, ah, I conned him again. Uh, these practices that some salesmen in, 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 in engage in are not good practices. What about all the false advertising <laughs> that we see round about us? Uh, building things up, uh, uh, making all kinds of claims for things that aren't true. We used to have a brand of Aspro when I was a boy, and I remember the radio adverts. You've got to use so-and-so's Aspro, because so-and-so's Aspro checks biliousness, reddens the lips, clears the bloodstream, aids indigestion, no digestion, aids digestion, and carefully but invigoratingly tones up the entire system. You'd wonder how a doctor could make a living with a product like that on the market that you can buy without a prescription. It's not true. It's not true. And if we're Christians that make these aspirins, that brand, I really think that we shouldn't resort to such practices. And uh, I think in the end, the public finally becomes so cynical toward it that they will buy a product more easily if uh, the seller says our product is more expensive than the others but then it's better if the seller really does think that so um, we need to tell the truth when we're selling goods to the public whether it's an old car or an old house or whatever it is um, pointing out defects actually we're legally that we know about we're legally required to do this if you sell someone a commodity and you knew about a defect and you didn't disclose it to him when he bought it and he can later establish that you knew about that defect and neglected to point it out to him even if uh, in many cases uh, he didn't ask you is there a defect uh, he can sue for restitution of the contract of course you're going to have to prove all of this but that is the legal position and certainly the moral what about withholding from our neighbor the things that belong to him or enriching ourselves at his expense? And what about getting into debt? Owe nobody anything except to love one another. Romans chapter 13. If you're in debt to someone, you are enslavable by that person. And you've got no right to be, be anyone's slave except a slave of Jesus Christ so if you're in debt sit down acknowledge that it's not good to be in debt acknowledge that it is a form of theft from your creditor unless you have given him collateral which he can permanently annex if you are unable to repay the debt and then plan systematically how to get out of debt just as fast as you possibly can 
because with economic collapse and tensions which we all face in an uncertain world the last thing on earth you want to be in is in uh, a situation of debt uh, where you will not have control over your contract to repay that debt at the specified time get out of debt covetousness inordinate prizings of and affecting of worldly goods distrustful and distracting cares and studies in getting keeping and using them we break the commandment says the catechism thou shalt not steal when we like old Scrooge lay awake at night trying to scheme how we can get a little more profit out of the things than the handsome profit we're already making out of things um, of course we have got to plan to expand our wealth uh, but not to, uh, to the point that this becomes an obsession with us otherwise we make ourselves unhappy I have uh, a great uncle and he visited us once a very wealthy man Uncle Ted and all this man ever did while he was visiting us was read the Wall Street Journal the whole time and he was one of the most miserable people I've ever met money 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 was the only thing he ever thought about and it's terrible if we get that obsessed in trying to make money envying at the prosperity of others and so too our own idleness prodigality and wasteful gaming now I'll say a little bit about that as we approach the end of this lecture wasteful gaming means gambling if we gamble if we're the kind of people that take on bets we need to quit because as I said before gambling breaks just about all of the commandments all ten commandments in some or other way and um, I'm printing up a tract against gambling at this moment and um, it's a very very severe problem in Australia and in certain other portions of other parts of the world so we need to see that wasteful gaming is theft uh, gambling is theft it steals from your wife and family it steals from the other person who's involved in co-gambling with you if he loses and you win steals from your own ability to work in the sweat of your brow which is what God expects after the fall and all other ways by which we do unduly prejudice our own outward estate and defrauding ourselves of the due use and comfort of that estate which God has given to us idleness is theft diligence the opposite of idleness hard work getting up early in the morning working hard saving money expecting God to prosper us is the opposite virtue it's perhaps time for one or two questions to which we are able to have influence on that couple that is splitting up and wrecking their marriage and we may not of course if they're total strangers to us uh, we should rather use our influence to reunite them even if this means that we're not able to buy anything from the estate that would otherwise have been split up however I would say that if they have made what seems to be a pretty firm commitment to wreck that marriage and they're determined to go on in it and they don't want to listen to a sermon and they're going to sell it to the next guy if you don't buy it then I think it's quite proper and quite appropriate to buy uh, their furniture and whatever they're selling um, and if they're desperate and destitute I think the thing for us to do is certainly not to haggle them down to sell something very valuable for a very small price to us um, but uh, rather perhaps to end up buying one or two more items 
than we might otherwise have bought. Items for which we have some use, but which we wouldn't have bought for a reasonable price uh, had we perceived that they were not in quite the hole that they are in. Um, but I know I don't think we, 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 we should take advantage of them. In, in fact, I had a student uh, not too long ago who um, needed money and he had some silver and gold pieces and uh, I said, well, I'd be interested in buying them from you. Um, and he says, well, what would you offer me for them? Well, this student had really no idea what the silver and the gold were worth. And I'm sure if I'd said, oh, I'll give you three for one, I could have got them real cheap. But I honestly felt that that would have been taking advantage of him. And I said, well, I think what you need to do is uh, phone Southern Cross coin dealers and ask them what they're paying for silver and gold coins at this moment. And I'll tell you what, whatever they tell you, that they will pay you for it I'll buy it from you at that price or a couple of cents more um, so um, I think that's the way we should handle that kind of situation myself in point of fact uh, the Lord took a hand in, in his situation and he's still got the gold coins so um, I'm happy for him because uh, I really don't think he should try to sell them right now even though gold is plunging a little but I think it will go over a thousand bucks an ounce within a year or two well yes it, it, a lot depends upon our motive of course uh, it's proper for us to buy things at prices which we think are reasonable which price the seller also thinks is reasonable and uh, which bears some kind of relationship to what we could assess as the fair market value of that commodity I think that's proper but for a Christian to deliberately start speculating simply to try to corner the market to artificially create shortages that would drive up the price uh, I think that's like my old great uncle Ted very frankly and uh, I uh, what about this idea of providing for the Christian times of buying thousands of spades or lots of toilet paper and that and being ready to sell it off when the Christian has some people want those kind of things well um, not necessarily that may well be an option because uh, what it would mean if you go and buy a thousand spades <laughs> the manufacturer they um, you know start manufacturing more spades and then when he does that uh, your thousand spades may not be quite the valuable commodity that you might have thought they would because there's more supply than there's a demand um, no I think you need to get into something which uh, uh, which really is scarce and uh, to get into that but again not at the expense of expropriating others but on the on the free market either privately or as a dealer privately is a good way I would think I, I do have a f someone I know very well who's bought all kinds of drugs and aspirins uh, by thousands and thousands of them uh, many of them prohibited drugs which you need a prescription for which are in short supply and his idea is during the depression which he feels is coming to be able to corner some kind of a black market and control of these drugs and make a, a killing on it I really have some problems with, with that sort of thought I really do um, because um, that's a pretty vital commodity but at any rate um, it may be that he's not sinning but frankly it's not the kind of thing that I myself would feel comfortable in doing I don't know what the New Zealand situation is I do know in many currencies the paper money has written on it I promise to pay the bearer uh, so and so equivalent in metal at the time I tried this once 
um, I went and cashed a check at an American bank and the teller said how would you like it Dr. Lee oh I said I'd like it in $20 gold piece please and uh, she said I can't do you that uh, no I said I don't want this little bit of green paper uh, I had time to waste you know and I thought I'd goof around a little <laughs> I said I want a $20 gold piece oh I can't do that no I said it says on this bit of green paper you want to give me I promise to pay the bearer $20 gold so where's the $20 gold I'm offering it to you now I want the $20 gold well she called the manager for the bank happened to be one of my elders and he left and in the end of course I took the paper because there's no way that either that bank or the US government or reserve bank is going to honor its solemn promise to the American people to do what its currency says it will do but anyway I turned around to the girl the teller and what did she know about it I said by the way have you any idea what $20 gold is uh, costing at the moment and of course she hadn't the slightest idea though she worked in the bank and at that time it was running $250 an ounce and it's a lot more now so you see uh, there's something rotten in the state of Denmark <laughs> and not just in the state of Denmark but in most of the other states of the world and uh, really what's happening here is Isaiah chapter 1 is it not woe unto those who adulterate money who were uh, I don't know whether you've ever taken an American 25 cent piece probably true of New Zealand currency it used to be made out of silver uh, and um, oh 1964 I think it was they withdrew the silver coins and uh, put out a nickel clad or uh, alloy clad copper coin and if you drill a hole through this which I have seen done you can see it's brown all the way through <laughs> the sandwich except for a very thin layer of silvery looking substance on either side and do you know that today a post 1964 American quarter 25 cents that used to be worth 24 cents in silver before 1964 do you know that that American uh, 25 cent piece as to its metal content is worth less than an American penny one cent now that's not right that is not right but that's what we've come to the American cent is the one American coin today that's worth more than the cent costs more than a cent for the American government to make a cent and I've got friends who hoard American cents got drawers full of this stuff uh, but the problem in collecting American cents is that uh, it's only worth 2% more each cent is worth 2% more than one cent and uh, frankly if you invested your money the savings and loan you could get six or seven percent so why hold cents silver and gold is different though that is a good investment if you buy at the right time and sell at the right time yeah I can't answer that because I, I really am too ignorant of the New Zealand situation but I would say if New Zealanders form the impression that the buying power of your money is plunging and that it seems to be buying less and less faster and faster I think what you need to do is get your money out of the bank and get out of paper money as fast as you possibly can and get into the land a house dried food silver and gold if you possibly can particularly old silver coins that really are silver or 90% silver and which are remarketable uh, you need to get out of paper as paper plunges get into anything else and don't wait until you get the situation that you had in Germany after World War One, when men were being paid 10-20 million dollars salary paper dollars marks rather each month and having their salary doubled every month and it buying less the next month than it did the last with a man getting his pay in a wheelbarrow full of paper notes and then quickly getting away from his employer or the bank to buy anything hammer nails anything but just to get out of paper uh, because uh, it was spiraling down with that fast I'll say one last thing maybe we should close with that this is a true story you may not believe it but it's the truth once upon a time in 1919 
an American benevolent capitalist uh, visited Germany just after the German depression had begun to sink in. And he met a German there, a, uh, a porter in a hotel called Klaus. And uh, Klaus was very cheerful in the... You've heard of this? You've heard of this? It's a true story. Uh, the American wanted to help Klaus and uh, so after being a porter for several days when the American left the hotel he says Klaus you've been a good fellow uh, in addition to uh, the tip I'm going to give you this piece this German gold piece and uh, I forget what it was worth at that time but it was relatively low denomination German gold piece he says they, now Klaus, he says, I want you to do me a favor and make me a solemn promise. Whatever you do, do not sell or trade or get rid of this gold piece yet. He says, things are going to get a lot worse in Germany than they are now. He says, I want you to hang on to this. And I want you to hang on to it until things have gotten so bad that you think they can't possibly get worse. And then I want you to hang on to it. And then finally, I want you to wait until things are outrageously expensive and costing 10 million, 20 million marks for one loaf of bread still hang on to the gold one piece of gold and uh, then after when things hit rock bottom just when things begin to get cheaper again when you will no longer have to pay 20 million marks for a loaf of bread but when you see the price of a loaf of bread has fallen to a mere 15 million marks a mark used to be a shilling in 1900 uh, then Klaus but not before do you spend this piece of gold now have you got it he says yes sir thank you very much so the American went back to America and Germany as predicted went through this horrible cycle that wiped out old people's life savings and about 1929-28 about 10 years after that the American went back to Germany to the village where Klaus had been working and he looked for Klaus but he couldn't find him in the end the American gave up and he walked into this very large hotel on the village square uh, to get a room for the night and then to go on to the next place that he was visiting as a tourist and as he walked into this hotel a middle aged man came up to him and said sir can I carry your baggage for you Americans saw something familiar about this porter and he says sure American was racking his mind what's familiar porter got the luggage up to the room and American said this is Klaus and so the American didn't let on and asked Klaus handed him the key of the room dutifully put down the American's bags uh, American said oh Klaus you don't remember me do you Klaus says, oh yes sir, I do remember you. You're the American who gave me that gold coin about 10 or 12 years ago. He says, yes Klaus, too bad you didn't follow my advice. Or you wouldn't be working as a porter in a hotel like this. Klaus said, but sir, I did follow your advice. And I own this hotel. And I bought the whole hotel at the time you told me to spend that gold coin with that one gold coin. Now my source for that is R.J. Rushdie. All right, so you ready to go home? <laughs> this Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780 450 
You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.